Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. From St. Matthew, chapter 22. Then he said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Thus far the text. Amazed? Yes, they were. Stunned? Definitely. Silenced? For now. Finished with Jesus? No, not by a long shot. Those who had approached Jesus with this question about paying taxes to Caesar just needed to catch their breath a little, to regroup, to gather strength, and to come back one more time at Him for another round. No, they weren't finished just yet. And so, in language that is eerily similar to that from the conclusion of Jesus' temptation by Satan, these evil ones likewise left Him and went away until a more opportune time. It shouldn't surprise us, really. Whenever any of us sins, we're merely following the devil's pattern and plan, using Satan's methods, fulfilling his will and objectives. These so-called holy men of Israel, those who would hold themselves up to be spiritual examples, they were just as corrupted by sin as you or me. They took pride in their outward piety, yet they pursued their own sinful ways. Every day, as they went about the city, holding themselves up as paragons and virtue, they too were in willful violation of God's law and of the true spirit of God. And so, like the devil and like our own sinful nature, when they had been thoroughly humiliated by the true Holy One of Israel, these evil ones were beaten back only temporarily. And beaten back is a suitable term for it because Jesus is surely locked in a pitched battle between evil and with Himself and with all of the other forces of evil as well. For the past three weeks, the appointed Gospel texts have had Jesus on the offensive, as it were. In each of these lessons, he told a parable about how the unfaithful or the unbelieving would be denied entry into the kingdom of heaven. First, there were the two sons sent to work in the vineyard. Then there were the evil tenants who refused to give to the landlord his rightful share of the crop from his vineyard. And last week, there was the wedding banquet to which the unworthy guests refused to come so that the king had to seek out others who would come and share his feast. But let's step back for a moment and look at the overall dynamic of this battle. How has it developed? How did it get to this point? We know, of course, that Jesus had been preaching and teaching and healing all around the Judean countryside. He developed a large following. Almost everyone who had seen and heard him had concluded that he was some sort of a prophet. Some had erroneously concluded that he was the prophet, that is, the one who had come just as the forerunner of the Messiah. 
Only a few had recognized that he truly was the Messiah, the Christ, the rescuer of Israel. Some of these had mistakenly assumed that he would come as a earthly king to free them from their oppressors and their enemies. Others had to be told explicitly by Jesus himself that he was the sort of Messiah that was going to die for the people. Whatever they thought his real role might be, the religious leaders recognized that Jesus was some sort of threat to them. They just weren't sure how. Was he going to teach some new form of Judaism, reducing their authority and upsetting the apple cart of their carefully ordered and carefully controlled faith? Was he going to encourage some sort of revolt like the Maccabees or the Zealots? triggering reprisals by the Romans that might destroy Jewish culture, Jewish faith, and the temple itself. They couldn't have that. And so they took every opportunity they had to undermine this backwater rabbi, asking him more and more difficult questions to try to destroy his credibility. The attack started even while Jesus was still out in the countryside teaching and performing miracles. They took offense that he had forgiven the paralytic's sins, that he ate with sinners and with tax collectors, that his disciples broke the Sabbath when they plucked heads off the grain and then ate those grain heads with unwashed hands. They were first turned to thoughts of killing him when he healed on the Sabbath. They then demanded their own miraculous sign of him, And twice he told them that they would see no sign from him but that of Jonah. That is, spending three days in the belly of the beast of death before returning once again. These Pharisees claimed that it was by Satan's authority that he had cast out demons. They tested him on every point of the law they could think of. And his answers were always right, always true, and they always destroyed their carefully crafted plots. How frustrating. And now, Jesus had come to Jerusalem. Nothing they had tried so far had tripped Him up, or even slowed Him down for that matter. Right into the capital city. Right into the heart of all of Jewish life. Right into the temple grounds He came. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the sacrifice sellers those whose commerce generated a tidy profit for the temple and kept these leaders in their comfortable lifestyle. Untrained, unapproved, and not even from the priestly tribe of Levi, he was now teaching on their turf, within the walls of their dominion. Something had to be done. So Jesus was confronted. The leaders demanded to know by what authority he was saying and doing all of these things. And rather than stating by whom he had been given this authority, Jesus answered in such a way as to demonstrate that his authority came from himself. First, he had put them on the defensive by asking if John the Baptist's authority had been divine or human. Surely, if they acknowledged that John's authority had come from heaven then how much more so the authority of Him who is doing far greater signs than that of John? And so, they simply weaseled out of the question. But Jesus wouldn't back down. He wouldn't let them off the hook. He wouldn't let them off the ropes. 
Instead, he had hit them with those three parables. And each time they were more convicted of their sins and more convicted of their unbelief. So they decided to come up with a foolproof trap to catch him in his own words. A question that seemingly had no answer that could keep him out of trouble. If Jesus said that people should pay the tax, then he was not a loyal Jew. But if he said that they should not pay the tax, then he was a rebel against Rome, subject to imprisonment and punishment. A perfect trap, it seemed. What's more, it had to be sprung in a very clever way. First, they made sure that there were witnesses there who would have motives to report this fellow's answer to the right authorities, regardless of which way he said. For this, the Pharisees enlisted the help of those who were usually their rivals, the Herodians. He'd be caught either way, and then he'd get what was coming to him. Then, in what may have been the prototype for our modern ambush interview, these evil men approached the Lord with false humility and false praise, hoping to lull him into thinking that they wanted his advice and valued his opinion. Trick him into giving an opinion that we can use to damn him, they thought. Play it dumb. He'll think he's got us, but we'll have him trapped. It was a method almost as old as time itself. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree of the garden? You will be like God, knowing good and evil. It seemed to be the perfect trap laid by evil men who were in the grip of the evil one. Jesus would have to give an answer that would go against one source of authority or another, they were sure, and then they'd have the answer to their problems. Don't we just love to catch others in their words, too? To notice that little slip of the tongue and then to jump on it with both feet? To find that little mistake or that weakness in our spouse or our children or our parents or our friends or our co-workers and then use it against them? We love to gain the upper hand, to get that little extra measure of authority and to make ourselves seem superior to them. It's our nature, really. We look for these, these opportunities because despite our adoption as God's children through baptism, we remain children of Adam and Eve as well. We want to taste that forbidden fruit. We want our eyes to be opened. We want to possess a power that we don't possess by God's granting. We want to be like God, knowing good and evil. What's more, we want to be dispensers even of good and evil. The devil first used this technique against our race, and we all picked right up on it. Now, the serpent may have been the craftiest of creatures back then, but we've taken it to a fine art form. We always find ways to twist words to suit our own purposes. We use flattery and false humility to bait others into saying things so that we can then use their mistakes to make ourselves look superior, so that we can manipulate them into doing what it is we would have done. We'll even look for ways to create friction or conflict or controversy by meddling in the lives of others. Sometimes we do this simply for the entertainment value, to see some sort of reaction, to know that we get some sort of a validation from it, 
that we've influenced someone else, no matter how negatively. What's worse, we'll often try to use the law as a weapon against others. We'll lull them into that false sense of security, and then we'll pounce, holding their shortcomings up to ridicule. Sometimes we do this publicly to humiliate them, to make others observe how clever and how witty we are. Other times, it's done in private so that we can hurt them in the dark confines of their own hearts, to increase their anxieties, to play on their fears, to keep them off balance and keep ourselves more in control. It's a sickness, really. It's a sickness, a collection of symptoms that arises out of the disease of sin. And that disease has no cure within us. But there's a real danger in doing this. A mortal danger. If we use the law as a weapon against others, as a way to trap them for our own purposes, we will pay dearly for it. Living by that sword will make us die by that sword. And whatever we do to the least of the Lord's brethren, we do it unto Him. He who knew the evil intent of those Pharisees and the Herodians that day certainly knows your evil intent and mine. And He will speak to us as He spoke to them. You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap Me? What's more, He will ask of us all, why are you trying to trap and condemn My dear brothers and sisters, those for whom I suffered and died? Yes, those who attempt to trap others will more likely trap themselves. And there's a bit of irony, isn't there? That even in their false humility and their false flattery, these evil leaders in the Gospel text today condemn themselves and speak a large measure of truth. They said that they knew Jesus was a man of integrity. That He taught the way of God in accordance with the truth. That He wasn't swayed by men or cared about who they were. Yes, their very words, as insincere as they might have been, and no matter how evil their intent, they acknowledge in Jesus an authority that their hearts and their minds were not willing to grant Him. Integrity so perfect that He was without sin. Teaching and living in the way of God in such perfect accordance with the truth that He is the way, the truth, and the life. Thanks be to God that Jesus is not swayed by men. He is swayed and governed by who He is. He did not pay attention to whom you and I are in Caesar's realm. He only cares who we are in God's realm. We are His precious creatures. Those for whom He died, those He longs to draw to Himself in faith and in righteousness. There is also certainly an object lesson in this confrontation between Jesus and these religious leaders that day as to the proper separation of church and state. Jesus distinguishes between the secular government, the kingdom of the left, and the dominion of God, the kingdom of the right. Jesus pretty much settles the question right then and there about the rightness of taxes and the validity of worldly governments. As Christians, we are called to respect and obey the worldly authorities set over us when they are governing in a godly manner and to use the avenues and the abilities that God has given us to change those when they are not right. Yet in this world, 
we Christians must always continue to live and dwell in the tension between these two kingdoms. We must neither seek a theocracy nor abandon government and God's good purposes for it to the realm of secular humanists or those who would do great damage to Christ's church. But before we do that effectively, we must be clear and we must be confident as to where our true loyalties reside. In Christ, our citizenship is clearly and eternally in the kingdom of heaven. And we dwell only temporarily in this realm of Caesars and presidents. Some have chosen to place their faith in those worldly Caesars. But trusting in any prince or ruler of this world and putting that above the trust that we have in God, then our eternal lot would be with the prince of this world. That is, Satan. He who rules who rules a kingdom of darkness and despair and torment. However, you are drastically different. You are not of Caesar's. You are not of Satan's. You are of God. You have been chosen as His own people. You are given unto God the Father, offered up as tribute to your Creator by His beloved Son. Your account of what is owed to God the perfect obedience that you could not fulfill, and the wrathful punishment that you could not withstand, that has been paid in full by the life and death of your Savior Jesus Christ. Yes, your Lord and King has already collected all of the tax and all of the debt that you owe to God, and He has given you back a refund of immeasurable proportions, a washing in royal blood, not the blood of Caesar's, but the blood of a son of David. A gift of royal decrees recorded for you in His own words through His Holy Spirit and written on your heart every time you hear or read or speak or sing them. A royal feast which brings the King's own body and blood to you, assuring you of the redemption by which you are given seats at that royal banquet, now and forever. Because we hear it today in Jesus' own words, we can be certain that it is indeed permissible to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And we can do this out of our fleeting and decaying earthly goods and possessions. They are all God's gifts to us in the first place, are they not? Yet it is also right to give to God what is God's, even out of our own weakness and our own insufficiency. For God makes good and blesses whatever it is we do. Our joy and our confidence, however, come not from these earthly acts, but instead is anchored in that which leaves us far more amazed than those Pharisees were that day. That God has freely and lovingly and generously given to us the gift of life and salvation in Christ Jesus, which will be yours now and forever. Amen.